Welcome to Truth Jihad Audiovisual. I'm Kevin Barrett, looking all over the world for the most interesting folks with the most thought-provoking, stimulating, informative things to say that may not get properly considered in the corporate mainstream. And today I'm bringing on for the first time ever somebody I've been reading for quite a while and admiring, Alex Craner. He founded Craner Analytics. Uh, he's a uh, market analyst, researcher, and advisor, and he's currently in Croatia, where he's from. Uh, and one of the, he's one of those red pill truth telling people that uh, you occasionally find in the finance community. So, hey, welcome, Alex. Good to have you. Thank you for having me, Kevin, and warm greetings to all your listeners and viewers. Yeah, you know, if I had any wealth to need advising on, I'd probably uh, have put you near the top of the list of people I want advice from. But uh, your your stuff is great reading, even for those of us without a whole lot of wealth to uh, worry about managing. And I thought your latest piece was brilliant it uh made a point that you rarely see um but it's it's so critically important which is that private property is really pretty ubiquitous one way or another and that the formal systems allegedly devised to protect private property rights often have perhaps the opposite effect and that informal private property rights in places like of all places uh communist yugoslavia and other communist countries may actually be better in some respects than the formally uh, acknowledged property rights in so-called capitalist property respecting countries and that that's kind of uh, counterintuitive goes against the narrative but it's looks to me like it's obviously true it makes sense from what i know of morocco where there's a lot of informal property i was just looking for property in morocco and that got some um, and I encountered that. Yes, the majority of the city of Ujda is all uh, squatting on informal property. So maybe uh, you could set, tell us how you, know, how, how you figured that out based on your experience in, in communist Yugoslavia and in the capitalist West. Well, well, yeah, thank you. That's a very good question, Kevin. And I think that the, the, the advantage I have over many people who uh, take a position on this is that I have actually lived in on both sides of this divide, you know, and uh, I've I've lived in the so-called communist world and I've lived in the capitalist world now for the last uh, almost 30 years. And uh, what 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 I've noticed is that there's a there's a very wide gap between what's uh, what we could say are ideological precepts and the actual practice. So in, you know, in the communist world, uh, the society was kind of founded in the Marxist ideology, which wanted to do away with, uh, uh, with private property, okay? So, you know, in the West, there's a widespread assumption that we didn't have any private property rights in the communist world, but that's not true at all. We had private property, people owned their houses, their cars, their... Uh, holiday homes, their, uh, you know, plots of land, uh, some of which were quite large. Many people had private businesses, you know, small manufacturers, restaurants, hotels. Um, people made, had uh, small shipyards and so forth. There were some limits. I think that in the former Yugoslavia, you could not have more than 50 employees. And I think that the big issue was getting credit to um, to expand your business. But people had private property. The thing that was very different is that basically when you bought something, whether it's a car or a, or a house or a piece of land, you had a, you know, like you made a contract with a seller, you bought the thing, you registered your uh, your uh, your property in some way with the notary or uh, you know for the car obviously you had to have a registration uh, license plates but there was no land office of any kind for you know plots of land for um, for houses and apartments essentially your neighbors understood that you lived in a certain house that you had a certain plot of land and beyond that, there was no dispute. You know, there was generally the government only got involved in the whole thing if there was a dispute. And that 
was very rare, actually. Uh, people just kind of made peace. We had neighbors who had a plot of land outside of the town. We knew that they would go there, uh, you know, every week and more or less. Uh, they would bring back, you know, potatoes or fruits or whatever, and they would share it with the neighbors and so forth. And that was their land. And nobody, you know, there was nobody disputed that that was their land. Nobody uh, tried to take over their land. Uh, what happened in 1991 when we well, let me stop you for a moment were, were there property taxes in the coming state? no there were no no there was no property taxes and in fact in croatia there still isn't any property tax hmm. and this is this is really politically a very hot potato because people think it would be absolutely absurd to have to pay property uh, to pay a tax on property that is yours it's yours why should you pay the government attacks yeah. on what is yours quite a few people well, think that way know, here too <laughs> yeah, yeah because you know people go people go used to certain things even though they are uh not right at all including income tax you know uh in the united states you didn't used to have income tax until 1913 when uh, you know the bankers created the federal reserve bank and then they kind of uh, sold the american people uh, the need to participate in World War One, and then the World War One was, you know, this epic struggle to make the world safe for democracy, and everybody had to pitch in, and oh, it's just going to be a small, temporary one percent income tax to help the war effort make the world a better place. Except, you know, like nothing is more permanent than temporary government programs and taxes, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, People could shrug and accept the one percent temporary income tax, but then this thing never goes on, goes away, and it just grows and grows and grows. And today, American people pay more taxes than medieval serfs and work a lot harder than medieval serfs. You know, so what I wanted to underscore in my article is not that I support the communist system because I don't. Well, you're no practically converting like to... me to communism. It, so it sounds like it worked no. better than what I have in America right now. Well, let's say that, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very long discussion. But, you know, what I wanted to do is basically because I've been, you know, I, I've been educated in the West, right? Uh, I, I, I left the, the communist world when I was 17 uh as a, as a foreign exchange student i went to the united states and i completely embraced the western system and the capitalism and all this but i i understood that there's a huge difference between ideology and actual practice and i and i also understood that for all the good of the west that's perceptible on the facade on the surface you know on the on the, on, the, on the brochure doesn't correspond with the actual practice. You know, so the West supports private property rights and free speech and freedom of expression and uh, habeas corpus and all these things. But then, you know, in practice, there's a lot of exceptions and the government will give itself all kinds of leeway to violate its own uh, values over this or that emergency or priority or, or or important issue that it needs to deal with you know you know wars or pandemics or uh, need to fight the terrorists or the need to fight fight uh, racist or insurrectionist or mm -hmm. and that uh, stuff is typically exaggerated if not made up out of whole cloth Oh, sorry, you're, you're muted. I think. Sorry, I just had a call, so that muted the, the, our see. conversation. Basically, uh, if you know the governments invoke emergencies in order in order to be able to sidestep uh, the legal strictures that exist to protect the people from the government, and because people say like, "Oh, okay, well, we can we can kind of accept it because we understand that there was this emergency." Well, then the government can always invent emergencies in order to sidestep the legal strictures. And then people just kind of like little by little get used to more and more and more infringements upon their uh, civil liberties and their rights. 
And, you know, a couple of generations down the road, you find yourself, rather than paying zero income tax, you're paying, what, 35 40%. In Europe, it's close to 50%. In some countries, it's more than that. You find yourself paying uh, property taxes on property that is supposedly your own. Um, and people don't question, don't question this, uh, I think, as they should, because if you are obliged to pay property taxes on property that is supposedly yours, what happens if, for some reason, you're unable to meet the property taxes? You can't. Well, pay it happens it. all the time here in the United States. Old people it happens get all the time you know, they lose the their taxes houses. Are yeah, mm -hmm. people lose their houses. Sometimes they lose lands and houses that have been owned by their family for generations. And because their ability to pay taxes can't keep up with the with the with the price price bu bubbles, then they lose this. So what does that imply? That implies that it was never yours. You only enjoyed it with mm -hmm. the indulgence of the government, provided that you paid the tax. Now, now let me quickly just inter interject a different perspective because um, Paul Fitzgerald and Liz Gould are coming on my live show this Friday. They support Henry George's theory, which is that there should be only one tax, and that should be on land, and it should not go up with the improvements. So the, the value of the land itself with no improvements should be taxed, and that should be the only tax that anybody ever pays. And the, the Henry George argued that this would optimize economic performance, basically. What do you think of that? Um, I I don't know what to think of about that, Kevin. I'm not a I'm not a tax expert in any in any way. I I uh, I'm not sure what the best way to tax the people would be, but I am pretty sure that uh, property taxes and income taxes should be zero, as they as they have been through most of human history. Okay, so um, I, I'm in Croatia now, but I, I normally reside in Monaco. And in Monaco, there are no, there is no income tax. You know, I, I've lived in Monaco for 27 years. I haven't uh, declared my income even once in my life. And nobody ever asked me how much uh, mm -hmm. money I make or, you know, I, I never had to sweat uh, waiting for my, my tax returns. Mm -hmm. It's um, nobody's business, really, isn't it? I mean, that's that's the worst nobody, thing. Worst thing about taxes yeah, is the violation of privacy. You're, the government claims the right to examine every single penny that's passed through everybody's hands because you know what's income, what what I'm spending is income to somebody else. So essentially, the government demands the right to surveil every single economic transaction so they can tax it. That's correct. absurd. Correct. Yeah. It's absurd, but you know that they 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 kind of got the people to acquiesce because they think like, well, if we didn't pay income taxes. How could the government even function? They how could mm -hmm. they even make their money? Well, you know, in Monaco, the the government collects no income taxes. They tax businesses, and they tax them based on their profits. Mm -hmm. Okay, makes sense. So uh, it used to be like that in the United States as well. Yeah, and then you know, if you look historically, the personal income taxes, even when they were introduced, they were like a minuscule portion of the government tax receipts. But as the corporate lobbyists, you know, uh, uh, influenced the government and kind of bent the rules, you see that over time, an increasing share of government's tax, rece tax receipts is attributable to personal income taxes paid by ordinary people and less and less and less paid by the corporations, regardless of how much profit they make. You know, you have corporations that invent these tricks and loopholes, they, they end up not only not paying any taxes, they even actually uh, get tax breaks and, and, and tax subsidies, where people today, I think, the average American households pays $37,000 a year. <laughs> right, That's yeah, you see, you, you see this. In, in the United States, uh, you see places that offer these huge tax subsidies and breaks and basically uh, bribes and you know reverse Robin Hood schemes for big corporations, sometimes at sports teams. Uh, and, and the rationale is always that, oh, this huge corporation or this sports op team or whatever deserves our public money that we're going to tax all you ordinary people for because they provide so many jobs. 
Uh, and so the, they end up giving the big guys who uh, all of this uh, looted wealth based on the premise that the big guys deserve it because they're the ones who provide the jobs. But all the ordinary people have to pay for it. It's bizarre. Yeah, yeah and it's, that's again, uh, you know, an argument that puts the horse before the cart. Mm-hmm. Because, okay, here's another uh, huge difference between... Or, or maybe vice versa. Social- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway. yeah, exactly. Sorry, the cart before the horse. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, um, the, the, the huge difference between uh, what we call the socialist world versus what we call the capitalist world, there, there actually isn't a fundamental difference except the way uh, government spending is uh, allocated in the economy. So on both sides, because of the because of this uh, fraudulent money system that we have now already for uh, over a century in the, in the Western world, uh, the government has to participate in the in the economy, and the government's participation in the economy has to be bigger and bigger every year. So you always see government de- deficit spending in all in all Western so-called capitalist nation is increasing in in a way that will prove to be exponential with time okay um there's a there's a there's a mathematical reason for that but you know, I mean, it doesn't sound sustainable that. exponential no, no, not processes sustainable. are not and this is why in in history every fractional reserve uh banking system has collapsed always there's no there is simply no way to avert its collapse. It's baked into the, is baked into the equation for the from the from the get-go. But just to set that aside for a moment, what happens in the systems that we call capitalist, which is you know like countries like Western Europe, United States, uh, the UK, and so forth, is that government uh, spends money by giving subsidies, and 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 buying stuff from large corporations and large banks, big agriculture, military industrial complex, uh, large banks, uh, big pharma corporations and so forth in forms of uh, tax breaks, in forms of uh, um, government contracts, uh, subsidies and so forth. So the largest of the government is directed to the wealthiest and most powerful uh, strata of the society. In the socialist world, the governments would spend their money bottom up. So the money would go, uh, you know, they would they would pay, give, let's say, what we would consider overly generous um, uh, social, uh, how do you call it, social security checks, uh, over generous pensions. Um, uh, over overly nice education system and and, and free healthcare, and free university ge- education and so forth. You know, you're, you're really so, converting me to communism. You're gonna, you're going to have me like waving the hammer and sickle pretty soon. Yeah, but you know, like it's not, it's not really to do with the communism. It's just it's this is a, this is a political choice of any society. You can you know, the government spending is a given. And uh, exponentially rising government spending is a given. And that's dictated by the money system. If the government doesn't do that, the system implodes. It's, it collapses into a, into a deflationary depression. That's, that's mathematical. Now, the political choice of the society is do you want to spend that money mostly uh, bottom up or top down? Do you want to give money, the government money, to the wealthiest uh, segment of the society or to the ordinary people. Well, what happens when you give money to the wealthiest segment of society is that you get investments into private space program, uh, uh, enormous military industrial complex that absolutely is not justified by by what you actually get from it, you know, which which we now understand. Uh, you get investments into cockamamie schemes like um, like uh, massive solar wind power things. Um, the the 
the the very highly technological control matrix because the very very wealthy people want to make sure that the people at the bottom uh, levels of society cannot you know uh, somehow orchestrate a wealth distribution so they want everybody to have these uh, you know uh, QR codes and vaccine passes and they invest in vaccine you know like you get you get oligarchs basically you get mm -hmm. oligarchs yeah. who uh, to protect their wealth inevitably turn towards uh, oppressing the rest of the society whereas in in the systems that we call socialist and this is just a different political uh, choice is the government uh circulates the money bottom up so you know uh ordinary people are better off so if ordinary people are better off then you don't need companies and clubs and and and, and banks to create jobs because ordinary people create these jobs by patronizing other businesses and by choosing which businesses to patronize you know like so people feel well off they'll eat in restaurants and those restaurants are going to be creating jobs or they'll be buying nicer clothes and shoes and so they will you know create uh jobs in the apparel industries or, or you know or yeah, so it sounds movies. like par paradoxically here the uh communist or socialist system ends up producing something closer to a free market that's working the way it should than the capitalist system does well you know, the capitalist system as we define it today, by by catalyzing, well, by 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 promoting this uh, wealth disparity is actually creating uh, is creating fascism, because this is exactly what you get when you create this uh, ultra wealthy elite, who then to protect their wealth and power have to kind of. Uh, oppress the rest of the society, keep them ignorant, keep them impoverished, keep them, you know, like just smart enough to work the machines and just, and not smart enough to question the system. Whereas, you know, what we had in the, in that uh, socialist system was that we didn't have these uh, uber wealthy billionaire oligarchs at all. There were wealthy people, you know, there were people who owned a restaurant and a hotel and a yacht and a large house and drove a Mercedes and so forth. But most of the ordinary people were had money to spend and live a good life. We had zero um, homeless people. There were no homeless people. We had extremely low unemployment, uh, poverty, the percentage of people living in poverty was very, very low. I don't really know what it was, but, you know, like I went to public schools, I know, and, you know, like I grew up here, there were clearly some people were not well, were better off than others, but, you know, like the, the poverty, poverty where, you know, like people uh, not having any shoes to go to school in, uh, there, there was nothing of the sort, you know, so uh, we lived a good life. We really lived a good life. So if you can, if you can set aside the, the the ideology, because you know ideology gets people very hung up, and if you if you say socialism, immediately a segment of the you know part of the people will go like, no, never, that's death. You know, you're a communist, you are a, you're an enemy, you're a Chinese, uh, whatever, you know, spy, uh, or you know, to the other group of people, if you say capitalism, then they flip up because you're a, you're a heartless. Um, you're a heartless uh, capitalist and you want to oppress the people. But I, what, what the point I wanted to make with my article is that I believe that if people um, focused and thought through clearly the issues on their merits rather than through idol worship and through you know this this these tribal allegiances i'm a capitalist i'm a socialist i am certain that 99% of people would agree on the on the on the basic issues i would you know, think so then, too yeah yeah i believe yeah, so. I, 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 I ran for congress 
I ran for Congress as a libertarian in 2008, and the platform included uh, deregulating small business and uh, only regulating big business. And my libertarian platform also included public health care. Um, I was the only libertarian in America that, that did that. And, and of course, all the other libertarians ganged up on me and beat me up for it. But pragmatically speaking, just looking at how what, what are the results, I think you, you have more individual freedom in a nation with a public health care system. It's you end up being oppressed by the insurance companies and all of the paperwork and so on and so forth a lot more than you would be by your public health system. And so thinking pragmatically about how things should work and you just drop these drop the labels and be pragmatic, you end up with with that kind of you know ide ideology transcending outlook. And that's I, I see that you've You've arrived there too. I think if I had my my late communist friend Andre Volchek, who was a real you know uh, fire breathing communist, great guy, wonderful guy, you know he was kind of my token communist guest. And I think if he were with us today, uh, he would totally agree with you. He'd be on the same page with you, even though normally one might categorize you as more of a libertarian, you know, the financial community guy. So you know maybe. Yeah, when RFK Jr. says he wants to transcend division and transcend these ideological tribal allegiances, you know, maybe there is a way to do that. Yeah, and I think the way to do that is to really uh, try to think clearly about the issues at hand. You know, what what are the problems of society, and how do how to think through to the best solutions to those problems. And you know, like I, I, I see that many people flip out if you say uh, public health, uh, you know, universal public health. Uh, it's it's as if healthcare has to be profitable. It, it really doesn't have to be profitable. Uh, you, you know, there's there's this idea which is very badly mistaken. That every business in the in the economic machine of the society has to be profitable. That that's not a, the case at all. You know, there are certain, uh, you know, certain businesses represent the society's capital. You know, for example, the roads, the bridges, the 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 railroads, the airports, and so forth, the canals, yeah, and, infrastructure. You know, the the, the infrastructure. And th that should include also things like uh, parcel delivery, letters delivery, you know, the post office. Um, Maybe currency creation, too. Pub credit, public yeah. public currency credit. creation. Yeah. A lot of these things. But, but, you know, like you would have to sit down and think, like, what is the function of this particular piece of infrastructure in society? And, you know, um, the... the, 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 the companies operating rail... rail uh, railroads shouldn't have to be profitable because they provide a massively valuable service to society, which is in lowering the cost of transactions. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, in the United States, when they when they uh, cut the the when they when they dug the Erie Canal canal, the the cost of of trade between the Great Lakes and the East Coast collapsed by 90%. It made possible to, you know, for this trade uh, to, to flow from one side to the other, which then spurred the creation of, of, uh, of new businesses and new industries and more employment. So now whether the Erie Canal Company is profitable or not is entirely secondary. You know, so that kind of a thing can be a government subsidized uh, thing to keep it and to maintain it. And then you can you can uh, push that logic to ask yourself, what is the worth to the economy of a healthy, productive uh, workforce? Mm -hmm. So if people don't feel well, they should be allowed, they should be able to stay home until they get better as it is now that's for most people most people cannot afford to do that mm -hmm. so they you know like they take these uh these these cold medications and they go to work they're infectious so they get mm -hmm. other people sick 
Yeah, that, that was part so of the craziness in the response to COVID was yeah. uh, rather than just staying home when you're sick, which you should always do. You know, we're in a society where people have the habit, as you say, of taking medications and just going to work anyway. And then COVID comes yeah. along and now they imagine that by jabbing themselves or, or putting some kind of a dust mask on their face, <laughs> they're going to be yeah. uh, saving their coworkers. And, and a sane person who doesn't wear the mask, doesn't take the jab and just stays home when they get sick is considered a threat to public health and has to be deplatformed. Exactly, exactly. So there's there's all kind of, uh, you know, like incoherent uh, arguments being made all over the place because people, rather than thinking clearly about what is the problem and what would be the best possible solution, they feel that they have to adhere to some ideological precept because they identify with, with, with it, you know, like I, I meet people who tell me, oh, I'm a card carrying capitalist, you know, like, and they wouldn't, you know, like their, their main obsession is to make sure that nobody gets anything that they didn't earn or deserve by, by working for it, you know, uh, whatever. But, you know, we as a society create such a massive abundance of wealth that we should be able to pay people to sit home and get well. We should be able to pay for people to retrain themselves if they if they if they're not happy or not productive in their current employment. That we should be able to pay people to write a drama and novels and and um, how do you call it symphonies or whatever because it has you know if you look at what is the difference between England and the United States for example and say Germany and Russia because Germany and Russia have produced a a very large number of these classical composers who mm -hmm. have produced, you know, like practically all the masterpieces of the classical music that everybody's familiar with pretty much comes from Germany, Russia, or Italy. That's right. Very, very few from, you know, like in England, pra practically nothing because England allocated all of the society's surpluses to, you know, to trade, to wars, to conquest, to colonialism, and to the, to the building and maintaining of their empire. So, you know, these are all political choices. What do people prefer to spend their money on? Do they want to be waging war all over the world? Or do they want to have nice schools and now nice hospitals and safe streets and beautiful parks? And, uh, you know, do they want uh, their talented musicians and painters and, and writers to do their craft and, and provide them, you know, entertainment and other forms of uh, you know gratification so you know all, all of these are fair questions that should be open to debate on their merits you know not clouded by ideology not clouded by tribal uh, allegiances and you know i think ultimately when you dress it down it's pretty much idol worship on both sides and even people who you know who have spent a great deal of time reading economics and who are acolytes of, of Marie Rothbard and uh, Ludwig von Mises, they, they, they tend to be as narrow-minded as, mm -hmm. as, as the other people. Yeah. As the maybe people maybe even the more side. so sometimes. In fact, even more so sometimes than the people on the, on the far left of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I think that all of, those, all of those false dichotomies fall away if we just focus on the problem itself forget the ideologies and try to think like what 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 for a society is the best solution that we should strive for and then things become a lot a lot clearer and then we also find that we have many many historical precedents where you know certain problems uh were solved in a way that was to the satisfaction of most people and it happens to be that you know in the communist yugoslavia we had some 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 of those problems solved really 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 well. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating point. Well, there's a a, a famous anthropologist, I'm forgetting his name right now. Oh, oh yeah, Clifford. Uh, uh, man, forgetting his last. Anyway, he he made the point that people can choose to be oppressed by their family or by their government. In a traditional society, you're oppressed by your family, which is the main unit of governance, the extended family. And in a uh, so-called modern society, you're oppressed by the government, and I suppose the corporations that own the government. Well, it sounds like you know what you're suggesting is that we can all be oppressed and spied on and surveilled and subjected to Orwellian measures 
by a bunch of extremely corrupt, super wealthy oligarchs, which is how the West is run right now, or we can be spied on in an Orwellian manner that may be a little less oppressive, but not much, by the authorities in a place like socialist China, where the government that is in fact spying on you or directing that whole Orwellian apparatus exists primarily to keep the oligarchs at least somewhat under control and to keep the society serving the interests of ordinary people to a certain extent. But in order to keep their position and keep a lid on the oligarchs, among other things, and not to mention the Americans who are planning to overthrow them, the uh, government in, in socialist China ends up erecting a Orwellian surveillance apparatus that's probably even more extensive than what we have in the West. So again, that kind of makes me wonder, you know, you could be oppressed by your family, oppressed by the government, which is, you know, they're both uh, not particularly pleasant, or you can be, you know, oppressed by the Socialist Party, or you could be oppressed by the, the capitalist oligarchs. Neither of those are really all that pleasant either, are they? Well, you know, if you're oppressed by your family, uh, usually it's... Yeah, I'll take the family. It's more, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's usually more benevolent and more constructive than the government because, yeah. you know, if it, if, a day, if a day comes that you need you need a, a roof over your head or a kidney, you're going to get it from your family. You're not going to get it from your government. If anything, when you need a roof over your head and a kidney, the government is more likely to take it from you. You know, uh so there's for me there's no question about it and um uh, yeah I, I agree with that but when it comes to the cat the, thing, the, the, thing that I'm not the sure socialist yeah. yeah 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 the thing that i'm not sure about is is china you know i i i look forward to learning a lot more about the way china operates but you know i i, I from what i see is that a lot of a lot of what we think we know about china turns out to be false and you know over the past year or two i started following um sources from china uh who let, let's say the westerners who live in china you know british french italian people who live in china and i'm very curious about what they report because you know it seems that we know a lot about china that these people then say like what is this we you know like social credit system you know it's been blown up into this Orwellian nightmare. And, you know, they always show us these images of Chinese people walking down the street and there's like a little square around their face with some identifier. And I mean, that just looks like a, like a scene from a, from a dystopian sci-fi movie. But these people from China who, who actually live in this system say like, we don't even know what you guys are talking about because there is there is no social credit system in China that we know of. So, what, what there are there are certain system there are certain systems in China that are there for administering normal government functions. You know, whatever pensions, salaries, uh, driver's licenses, health, uh, health, uh, social. Uh, social security thing I, I i don't know exactly and so they have certain things that are computerized and that are you know accessible by your phone where you can you know but you know the the propaganda machinery in the west has turned this turned this into something that it re, it, it isn't in reality okay so i don't know what kind of system we're dealing with in china but if i look at the way, first of all, China has uh, grown from being the poorest nation in the world in the 1970s to the, the world's largest economy today. You know, I, I don't know if you can do that by keeping your, you know, like in, in North Korea style, by keeping your people afraid and oppressed by being by being brutal to them. Mm -hmm. uh, when I look at the way Chinese investments have impacted Africa, African countries, um, I don't I don't see the, the great aggressive malevolence. I think that we're turning China into a boogeyman in a way that's not really justified by the facts on the ground. They did mm -hmm. raise 850 million Chinese out of poverty. 
and you know when you when 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 you look at the Africa situation, um, I was in in 2018. I was I was in Germany at a conference where there was a lot of people from African countries, and they were talking about Chinese investments, and they were all talking about Chinese investments in a way that was extremely positive. And so after I listened to their, you know, panel discussions and presentations, I made a point to go and ask them personally, um, is this is this just your, are you just talking shop or is this for real? And to a person, they told me, no, this is for real. They said, uh, the way Chinese are treating us is dramatically different from the way, way Westerners treated us. Um, for the first time in living memory, the African people are looking forward to the future and they expect that their children will be better off than they themselves were for the first time ever. Well, well, there was a brief period. There was a brief period where they felt that around 1960, when independence swept Africa. But what happened then, of course, was that the uh, West managed to jack up the prices of, uh, or rather, the, the rising price of commodities that were going to fuel uh, prosperity in Africa and other exporting countries. They, uh, the West, basically formed a cartel, pushed them back down, and then it installed puppet regimes in in these countries to basically loot them even worse than they'd been looted when they were colonial countries. Yeah, exactly. Because part of the Western uh, imperial strategy is includes the so-called demand destruction. Yeah, because you know what we do basically everywhere around the world is we we plunder the resources and we use the local population as cheap or preferably nearly free free labor force. And so we do not want them to be able to afford their own resources and to use them locally, or God forbid that they get prosperous and then they start uh, moving up the value chain and, and you know, developing their own industries to, you know, not export just the raw material, but also finished product. So this is why, you know, when, when these countries started to get a little bit uh, uppity, you know, from our point of view, then we uh, we slam them back down. We need them to stay poor, you know, and that's part of why uh, that's part of the reason why you know you had that uh, famous that famous speech by uh, General Wesley Clark when he said that they you know like they had plans to take down seven countries in in the Middle East in five years, you know, Syria, Libya, Lebanon, um, Iran, and uh, Sudan. Iraq, I think. And, Sudan, yeah. yeah. Because what was happening is that these countries, as they grew more prosperous, they were consuming more and more of their own oil and gas at home, mm -hmm. and they were becoming more prosperous. So they needed to be pushed down because, you know, Western uh, banks and corporations do not like corp uh, competition. They were also, they were also um, becoming a threat to Israel. Uh, yes, yes, potentially as well. Uh, whereas... Chinese strategy is different. You know, China has positioned itself as the world's uh, manufacturing powerhouse. And so they want to lift up other nations of the world. They want a very large population of prosperous people who can afford to buy their products. They want large markets full of prosperous people with purchasing power. So rather than keeping the people poor and ignorant, they want them to be uh, well off and to have money to spend. Well, those dastardly Chinese—that's a what, 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 oh, yeah. a what a global conspiracy that is. <laughs> yeah, but that you know, like that 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 strategy is actually is 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 a polar opposite of of the Western strategy, and it kind of de de destroys the it destroys the concept of these uh, oligarchs in the West who need everywhere else to be just a source of raw materials and um, and free cheap labor force. Uh, but for everybody else, you know, even for, for people in the West, the Chinese strategy is much better because imagine if you had, if you imagine if you had like a, a, like a small business producing some widget and then, you know, there's, there's these massive markets 
uh, counting billions of people who have money to spend. And maybe you can spend your widgets not just in the United States and in Europe, but you can also uh, export some widgets to, to India and China and to African countries. And now, you know, maybe instead of there being a billion people in the world who have a little bit of money to spend, there's maybe uh, three or four or five billion people. Well, now, you know, you can you can grow your business, you can expand, you can you can you can hire more people, you can sell more goods, you can travel around the world uh, doing doing um, industry shows and so forth. You know, it's I think it's a better I think it's a better world for everybody except for, you know, these these degenerate oligarchs who want to uh, to divide the world between, uh, you know, busy, busy termites and just themselves as a, as a different species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're onto something. Well, it's interesting. Your view of China is the polar opposite of what I just heard from my left-wing socialist friend, uh, Dave Lindorf, who's, you know, one of my favorite sort of ex-mainstream pink-pilled guys. You know, he he looked into 9-11 enough to get semi-red-pilled on that, but he won't quite go all the way. And uh, then he, he looked into the Boston bombing and realized that the Tsarnaev brothers were innocent, or at least, you know, if they weren't, they were set up, that the real bombs were set yeah. off by somebody else. And so, yeah, Dave's a, he's, a, he's a very, very smart guy. He's done great work on a lot of the crimes of the empire. But his I've view... Read, I've, read, I've read his stuff. I've read a lot of his stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's a smart guy. Um, his COVID take is the polar opposite of mine, in part because he's immunocompromised, and so he's paranoid about it. And, you know, once you're paranoid about COVID, you jump to a different view from those of us who aren't. Uh, but I don't think he's entirely wrong about that from his perspective. But his, on China, I was surprised to hear him uh, on the most recent interview I did with him, really bashing China in terms of its Orwellian qualities. And so everything you just said, I, I would totally I would agree with China being a more benevolent you know, investor in Africa, which isn't saying much, but I mean, a lot more investment benevolent than the West was. And I would agree that the Chinese people have been pulled out of poverty, that their lives are obviously not some kind of horrible nightmare, and so on and so forth. I'm sure the Uyghurs have not been oppressed and nearly as badly as the propaganda machine tells us, and so on and so forth. So on most of these issues, I would agree with you. However, on the issue of, you know, to what extent is there a, a an omnipresent surveillance apparatus, uh, I don't know. That's what he, he seemed to think that there was and that it was very very unpleasant he's lived there quite a bit by the way so he's, he's speaking from some experience okay well it's possible look I, I i don't know but i uh i i listen to what people who live in china tell me and uh, they they're not nearly as worried about this um this orwellian uh surveillance system as we seem to be and i can i okay for example I'll, I'll give you an example I live in Monaco, as I mentioned, and Monaco is, you could characterize it as a police state. It has the most police uh, per capita of any nation in the world, okay? In Monaco, pretty much every square meter, every square foot of the principality is under surveillance cameras, okay? So you could, you could make a case that Monaco is some kind of an Orwellian police state, except if you live your life as a law-abiding citizen, you practically don't even know that the police exist. If you ever approach pol a policeman uh, to ask them something, they're invariably helpful and polite. Uh, if a policeman stops you for some kind of an infraction, speeding or whatever, uh, they're invariably polite and very professional, and the encounters are, in my case, never unpleasant. So, you know, it's um, it, how we perceive a system is a little bit up to us as well, you know, because you could you could you could talk something into into a into a, an Orwellian nightmare, or you could say like, well, you know, this system is designed to do this and this is what it does. And if people are not, if people don't live in fear and people in Monaco do not live in fear, then you can say that the system is well-designed, it does its function and uh, life 
in that regime is good. Uh, well, if you are overly worried about the fact that maybe one in nine, one in nine people in Monaco are police, and that these police could, you know, uh, put us all in prison very quickly or do God knows what to us, then you could be all paranoid, paranoid and worried about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, see, I, I see your point, but but philosophically, I guess. Um, you know, maybe it's it's partly my background and so on. But if you look at you know Dostoevsky's dialogue you know, with the, in, in the Brothers Karamazov with the the Grand Inquisitor and Ivan, uh, you know the Grand Inquisitor is saying, you know, we're going to give people, you know, we're going to create the best possible world for these people who are really, you know, far very, you know, people who are very imperfect. So you know, we're going to you know just trick them and and surveil them and control them give them a paradise on earth, the closest thing you could ever get to a paradise on earth through this kind of benevolent totalitarianism. And it seems to me that by creating a panopticon and having everybody under surveillance all the time, yeah, that's probably going to lower crime rates. You know, it's going to have all kinds of beneficial effects. But in terms of the purpose of life, I believe the purpose of life involves uh, human relationships uh, a constant struggle between um, between selfishness uh, going off the rails and morality, our better natures versus our worst natures. If there isn't that struggle, then life is deprived of meaning. So if you're under surveillance and the reason that you don't commit a crime is simply that you're under surveillance, uh, your, your life is actually worse than if you're in a crime-ridden society where people are constantly making the decision to not commit a crime that they could get away with because for moral reasons. So for me, a perfect material paradise overseen by the Grand Inquisitor under which everybody is under a panopticon of surveillance is uh, hell on earth, no matter how pleasant it is materially. Whereas a barbarian health sco- healthscape where you're coming up with free uh, cooperation and competition with your fellow beings in a, in a situation where your morality actually has to function uh, is what we were made for. That's why God put us here. So uh, not, I'm not necessarily arguing for barbarian, you know, try people, you know, slaughtering each other and, and committing crimes. And so on. I'm just saying that eliminating all of this bad, uncomfortable stuff in, in, in order by eliminating freedom ends up making life worse. So for me, Monaco surveilling everybody is unacceptable. China surveilling everybody is unacceptable. United States surveilling everybody is unacceptable. I won't carry a, a, a surveillance device that makes phone calls, namely a portable phone. I, I've never had a portable phone. And as long as I could get away with not having one, I won't. And to the extent that I'm forced to carry a surveillance device everywhere I go, and it becomes absolutely necessary for me, I have to face that choice of, well, am I, am I just going to you know, go off the rails and, and do an individual act of rebellion here that's going to get me killed? Um, and I'm not going to do that. I have a family and so on. But I sure understand why people would. So uh, for me, it's it's a really tough thing. It's not, you know, these people who are happy being surveilled, they're happy carrying their cell phones around, they're happy being tracked with every keystroke, they're happy to have people following them on the internet and trying to sell them stuff based on what they read on the internet and so on and so forth. To me, that's all insane. The frog got boiled a long time ago. The frog should have jumped out of the pot and kicked ass on the people who were trying to boil him long, you know, back when we in the United States, when they forced the income tax on us, when they forced a national ID card on us, and so on and so forth. So, so I, I really have a problem with with that, you know, kind of acceptance of totalitarian surveillance. Uh, I think it's a this is a very fascinating discussion, and I think that the part of the reason why it's fascinating to me is because it forces us down to the question of whether we think that people are fundamentally good or are they fundamentally bad. You know, and the in the Western in the Western world, the ideology kind of strongly uh, supports the idea that we're fundamentally bad, and you see that propagated even through through Hollywood movies. I don't know. I've, I've, I've recently I watched a few movies that are um, portraying human beings in the in the Middle Ages, for example. You know, uh, recent. Well, no, it was there was this recent film with Leonardo DiCaprio, The Revenant. Uh, doesn't matter. It, it's, it's the Wild West story, mm-hmm. where you know 
people are just horrible. Human beings are just horrible. They 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 live outside in the wilderness. They kill each other for over over nothing, and then almost the same story, but placed in the in the in in the Scandinavian countries in the Middle Ages. Same thing. People are just these murderous monsters, and I think that the implication is if, if there isn't an, an authority watching over us, we're going to devolve into these, you know, Hobbesian monsters whose lives is short, brutish, and, and nasty, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, is that the truth? I, I don't I don't think it is. But here's something I wanted to say. My Because I used to live in the United States, uh, and that was in the late 80s and early 90s. And the thing, and, and I came to the United States straight from the communist world, yeah? And the thing that struck me about the United States, unpleasantly, is that I found that people are very afraid of the police, okay? People practically uh, shit themselves when they, when they get stopped by the police in their car or when they see a checkpoint. And I've, I've experienced this many times, you know, and I, you know, like my, my life with I, I, United States is practically my second home country. I married an American woman. My my ex-wife is American. My children are American. I'm I'm back and forth a lot, you know. So I, I I understand that world. I people are afraid of the police, in and Monaco, vice versa. Uh, yeah, and vice versa. In Monaco, I'm not afraid of the police. In former Yugoslavia, in the communist Yugoslavia, I was never afraid of the police. Like if they stopped you, it was a hassle. Maybe you got a bill, but it was never. It was never really unpleasant, and there was never really this worry that I might end up getting beat up or or mm -hmm. or you know anything like yeah, that. So yeah, it's it's like that with, with airport security too. Security, like in in, the, in other countries, exactly. the security is much nicer. In the United States, there a lot of them are assholes. Not all of them, but exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think there's 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 a lot of layers to this problem, not just the surveillance. Mm -hmm. It's just what is what is mm -hmm. the I don't know if there's a better word for it, but the cultural disposition of the authority towards its people. Is it benevolent? Do they think that they're there to serve their community? Or are they lording over them and bossing them around to make sure that they're obedient and that nobody gets uppity? Another thing I'm going to tell you is that uh, back in the communist uh, world of, of, of former Yugoslavia, we had... I I'm, I'm not aware of any restrictions on public gatherings, right? So it was nothing to organize a, a street party. I'd say like all the kids in the school, maybe a few dozen of us, or maybe even a few hundreds of us, to meet in some place, to bring some music and to, to, to have fun. Never a problem. In the United States, I think if you're more than a certain number of people, and it's not very large, this number of people, you have to register. You have to get a permission for mm -hmm. that. And then almost invariably, there's going to be one or two cops who are going to come there and surveil and watch mm -hmm. what's going on. And I've, I've the done The land of the free and the home of the brave. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, like I've done also, you know, like gatherings with friends on, on the beach in, uh, in uh, where was it, in Sarasota. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like these, we were maybe 30, 30 some of us. We had to have a permission to gather on the beach, public place. And then two cops on these quad bikes came and they, they parked and they watched over us the whole time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not. It's not just as easy as like, this is our chosen ideology and mm -hmm. and that's that. It's like, there's all all kinds of layers upon layers of 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 the problem matter that people should address. Mm -hmm. And just because they tell you that you're the freest people that that that, that have ever been in history doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. Mm -hmm. That's a good place to leave it because it's absolutely right. Well, thank you so much, Alex Craner. I appreciate the great, stimulating great conversation and the great work at your Substack. Uh, and what's a, then remind us the name of your Substack? Yeah, it's called uh, Alex Craner's Trend Compass. 
Alex Trainer's Trend Compass. Okay. Yeah, it was intended to be a, a, a news a newsletter focused on uh, on investing and trading commodities and risk management. But you know the uh, the events in the world overtook uh, over overwhelmed. You, you couldn't keep your mouth shut. I, I have that problem I too. Keep my mouth shut because <laughs> I, I I figure if we you know, like if we end up in World War Three, uh, then you know all the all the investing and investments are all going to go to hell. It's not gonna it's not gonna <laughs> matter very much. Okay, let's invest in peace and disinvest from World War Three. Well, thank you, Alex Craner. Take care. God Thank bless. you, Kevin. Bye -bye. Okay, bye.